Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. In May of this year, I'm sure you'll remember, the United Nations released its first ever comprehensive report on worldwide biodiversity, which concluded that over one million species of plant and animals are now at risk for extinction. Now, on the heels of that depressing report, we have news that the Endangered Species Act will be significantly weakened due to a major revision of the rules issued by President Trump's administration. The Endangered Species Act was signed into law in 1973 by President Nixon and protects more than 1,600 species in the U.S. and its territories. The grizzly bear, the bald eagle, the California condor, and dozens of other animals and plants can thank the Endangered Species Act for preventing their extinction. So what are the big rule changes and what can we expect going forward? Here to explain, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Wendy Kefover, Senior Strategist, Carnivore Protection at the Humane Society of the United States. Welcome back to the show, Wendy. Thanks, Dr. Lori. I'm happy to be here. Wendy, why don't we start with you describing to our listeners what the main rule changes are which will significantly weaken the effects of the Endangered Species Act. The Endangered Species Act is a bedrock law that has saved 99% of the plants and animals listed on it. And as you mentioned, we are facing an extinction and a climate crisis, and it's accelerating. Um, You know, we are living in the sixth mass extinction event called the Anthropocene. And uh, in North America alone, 277 species have gone extinct, including the passenger pigeon. And the ESA is recognized globally as one of the most effective wildlife conservation laws. And unfortunately, the Trump administration is waging war on wildlife by dismantling the ESA, our nation's bedrock environmental law. The Endangered Species Act is is a long law, and there's lots of provisions to it. But some of the things that he wants to do is to um, make sure that, that economics has more importance than conserving a plant or animal from going extinct. So, for example, um, you know, under the new ESA, if if these laws are allowed to go into effect, we could be seeing um, gold mines in grizzly bear habitat, or we could see logging in old growth forests in marbled murrelet habitat. Wendy, now we've gotten to know President Trump pretty well, and knowing his pro-business positions. Does this come as a surprise to anyone and to the Humane Society specifically? No, not at all. I mean, we, we've been working really hard to try and protect, for example, um, wildlife on our nation's national wildlife refuges and national park lands. And we've seen, you know, President Trump wage war um, up in Alaska and now opening up rules for allowing hunting and trapping on these, you know, specially protected lands for wildlife down in the lower 48. You know, he's got a policy of energy dominance, you know, so he's trying to open up the National Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for drilling. He's eviscerated two national monuments in Utah. Mm. He's withdrawn 9 million acres of uh, sage-grouse habitat in the West um, from protection to, to allow more oil and gas drilling. Yeah, that's really a shame. 
Wendy, let's talk about the issue of climate change in these rules. Critics are upset that it will be more difficult for regulators to factor in the effects of climate change on wildlife. How do the previous rules account for climate change and how exactly would the new rules regard climate change? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. I mean, we are we are definitely facing a climate crisis. I mean, I just saw a headline pop up on my news feed, like one quarter of the human population is is facing uh, a water crisis. So if that doesn't if that doesn't tell you that we've got an issue, I don't know what does. Um, and so under these rules, the the Fish and Wildlife Service must consult with all other cooperative agencies, federal agencies, to consult on critical habitat. And when when we have a warming climate, um, habitats are going to shift. For example, for grizzly bears, they're probably going to need to move more northward. Uh, so in areas that are that are cooler because they're very cold adapted species and with with no snow and with lesser amounts of snow and more drastic fires like we're going to be seeing uh, across the west with with climate change um, you know these these species are going to be facing in, uh, added hardships. And so rather than weakening the ESA, what we need to do is strengthen it. Another element that is being criticized has to do with the consideration of possible economic impacts when deciding how to treat an endangered or threatened species. So once again, how are economic trade-offs handled now and how will that be changed under these new rules? Well, right now under the ESA, um, they're supposed to use the best available science and not look at, you know, what's going to make, you know, an oil and gas industry the most money. And unfortunately, that's going to call that's going to come all undone under these new rules. So, you know, again, like the gold mine in grizzly bear habitat or, or, or logging in old growth um, forests along the western coast for marbled, marbled murrelet and then, the, you know, the sage grouse. I mean, that's just incredible that we're withdrawing 9 million acres of sage-grouse habitat in the West um, and opening it up to oil and gra- gas drilling without regard to conserving sage-grouse. Wendy, another element of the rule revision has to do with how species which are newly deemed as being threatened are to be treated. Can you explain that? And while we're here, can you remind us how a threatened species is defined and how an endangered species is defined? Um, well, the, a threatened species is defined as one that is likely to go extinct in all or a significant portion of its range in the foreseeable future. And under the new rules, they would they would change foreseeable future, um, basically disallowing you know that that criteria so they could make it easier to open up the rules. So it, it, it wouldn't matter if. If a species is about to go extinct, they could they could still um, open up, you know, critical habitat or other lands for some kind of extraction. Wendy, there are some critics of the way the current rules are implemented with regard to endangered species which have successfully recovered, and they claim that these species are not delisted when they should be. Does the Humane Society have a position on that? And how do the new rules change what happens to the recovered endangered species? Yeah, I think we have two really good examples about, uh, you know, species that the Fish and Wildlife Service has said are recovered, one being uh, gray wolves and the other one grizzly bears. And, you know, the, the, 
best available scientists and, you know, literally hundreds of biologists have said these two species are not recovered. And what happens when they have been delisted from the Endangered Species Act is that states immediately set up uh, trophy hunting seasons and permit recreational trapping, snaring, and even hounding. So, for example, um, when grizzly bears were delisted, Idaho and Montana immediately set up a trophy hunt on grizzly bears, which is just so disturbing. So disturbing. Um, Unfortunately, states just do not, you know, are not equipped to handle endangered species oftentimes. They just are... uh, you know, they're tied to their constituent group, which is often, you know, the hunters and trappers, and not, and they don't care about the best available science. No, I totally agree. It's infuriating. So, and one of the other rule changes um, would kind of ignore the endangered species five factors to determine whether a species has been recovered. And so one of those is, you know, is that species uh, endangered by loss or destruction of their habitat or range? Um, have they been overutilized, you know, whether for recreation, scientific, or commercial purposes? Are they in decline because of disease or predation? And then um, are there inadequate regulatory mechanisms, meaning are states allowing uh, the, the killing of too many of these species, for example? And then going back to what we were talking about, kind of the economics issues, I mean, one of one that hits home for native carnivores quite a bit is the idea that livestock are constantly being killed by wolves, cougars, and grizzly bears. And we just put out a report, um, actually three reports in March 2019, and we we had uh, we took a, a really deep dive into the USDA's um, livestock loss data. And we, what we found was less than 1% of the U.S cattle and sheep inventory in the U.S. are are killed by native carnivores and domestic dogs, and that most livestock are killed by respiratory problems, birthing problems, disease, etc. And so yet this, this, you know, these so-called livestock losses are just so um, pervasive in our culture, you know, the big, you know, the big bad wolf that, you know, there's a lot of native carnivore killing that goes on, and even species that are are currently listed, such as wolves or grizzly bears, um, under under the ESA, even some of these animals are, are being killed. Okay, don't go away. We're going to continue our discussion with Wendy Kefover when we return. You're listening to Animals Today. As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute. Because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you love your dog, leave them at home. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. Here are a couple steps you can take. Make an announcement in the store or business that the car is parked nearest to. Also, call the police department or animal control 
control right away. Remember, it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day. So swift action can save a life. Dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can. So never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day, not even for a minute. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals, now in our 11th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at AIAnimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's AIAnimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Wendy Kefover with Humane Society of the United States. Wendy, I would like to read to you a statement from David Hayes, the executive director of the State Energy and Environmental Impact Center at NYU School of Law, and get your reaction to it. And I'll just add that Hayes is a former Interior Deputy Secretary under the Obama and Clinton administration. He states, The Trump administration's decision to finalize these dangerous rollbacks comes at a time when threatened and endangered species are facing increasing pressure from global forces like climate change, drought, desertification, deforestation, ocean acidification, and the rapid destruction of critical habitats. He goes on to say, instead of looking for solutions to the global extinction crisis that threatens up to one million plant and animal species, this administration has decided to place arbitrary and unlawful lawful restrictions on the very federal regulators that Congress has tasked with protecting them. So, Wendy, do you agree that these changes are arbitrary? And what do you think he means by arbitrary? And what exactly would make these changes unlawful? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such a beautiful statement. It sums it up very well. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's basically it's coming down to um, benefiting, you know, the 1% in industry. Um, so it's, uh, you know, that sort of like if you just look at the energy sector, for example, oil and gas drilling, which has become really huge across the West, um, you know, it's the Endangered Species Act gets in the way of this industry. And so, uh, you know, this is this is why the Trump administration has rolled back protections for sage grouse on nine million acres. It's tried to delist grizzly bears and wolves. Um, so there's lots of there's lots of reasons. It's just that you know these animals get in the way of just all out industrialization, and it's um, you know and and so what they what they're trying to do is is change the rules of the ESA so they can make these things legal. So there are groups that are saying they're going to sue. So what's the legal basis for that? I mean, I think you know not only are groups, but I, and, um, attorneys general are getting ready to sue. Um, and I'm not a lawyer, so I can't answer what what the the legal basis is. But you know, this has been a bedrock law since the early 1970s under the the Nixon administration. It's an it's one of the most recognized environmental laws around the world. I would like to get you to respond to another comment. This one from U.S. Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross. He said. 
The revisions finalized with this rulemaking fit squarely with the president's mandate of easing the regulatory burden on the American public without sacrificing our species protection and recovery goals. Now, Wendy, we know that the Trump administration has been reducing regulations across the board, and this is something he ran on. Is Wilbur Ross correct to say that these rule changes reduce the regulatory burden on the American public? I don't think it reduces the burden on the American public. I think it reduces the burden on American industry. And the burden on the American public will be, you know, uh, more pollution, absolutely more pollution. And we're going to have a decline of ecosystem integrity. So that means we're not going to have clean water, clean air, you know, healthy environments for us humans, along with uh, the plants and animals that would be protected under the ESA. Because when you're when you're saving, for example, you look at the sage grouse, if you're if you're protecting nine million acres from oil and gas, I mean, that certainly is going to have an effect on water quality and air quality. Right. You know, Wendy, the American people generally like the Endangered Species Act and what it does. Overall, do you think these new rules would be viewed favorably by the American people? I mean, the 2020 election is not too far away. Absolutely. We know that ESA is hugely popular with the American public. Um, a 2015 poll showed that 90% of Americans uh, support the ESA, including 82% of people who identify themselves as conservative. Already, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has received about 800,000 comments in support of the ESA as part of this rulemaking. It is loud and clear. The American public love, love this law. It's an important law. It, it's a strong investment in our planet. It keeps people healthy and safe. It prevents the slaughter of iconic and sentient species like grizzly bears and wolves. And, um, you know, we are facing a climate crisis and an extinction crisis. And now more than ever, we need to have a strong ESA, and we should be funding the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service sufficiently so that they can do their work instead of undermining the Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, taking their budget away. So we should be doing even more to strengthen the ESA rather than weaken it. Okay, so we're expecting lawsuits and petitions and who knows what else. But for right now, for listeners who oppose these rule changes, what can they do to make their displeasure heard? You know, I think it's always important for people to stay active and lots of things that people can do. Um, contact your congressperson or your senator. Um, you can write letters to the editor or op-eds. Uh, right now, the um, the comment period is closed, but that doesn't that doesn't keep people from doing other other things. And you know, and I think that our our decision makers need to hear from the American public that they want the ESA protected. So, I would just suggest that people reach out and and contact their elected officials, and so their you know the senators and representatives to Congress. Senior strategist, carnivore protection at the Humane Society of the United States, Wendy Kefover. Thank you very much. Dr. Lori, thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. More with animals today, right after the break. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about leeches. Over the millennia, leeches have been used to treat various human maladies. Yes, leeches. These lowly worm-like bloodsuckers were depicted being used as far back as in Egyptian hieroglyphics. 
Hippocrates used leeches, but bloodletting by means of leech was really popularized by Galen and was widely used in ancient Rome. This was a time when illness was thought to be from an imbalance of the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, and typically too much blood was implicated. Leeches were perfect for bloodletting and rebalancing those humors. Even through the 1800s, leeches were used for bloodletting in Western medicine. But in modern times, leeches do have a genuine medical use, and in 2004, the use of medicinal leeches, they're actually called Herudo medicinalis, as a medical device, was given approval by the FDA. It turns out that they can be quite helpful in aiding the successful surgical reattachment of severed fingers. After the finger is reattached and arterial blood flow is established, the finger gets congested with blood because the veins are not re-sewn. The pressure in the tissue can get so high as to cause clotting and death of the severed digit. These medicinal leeches placed on the site will latch on and suck the blood out for 40 minutes or so, acting as a temporary venous drainage system. And after they let go, the anticoagulant from their salivary glands remains effective for hours, so a bit of bleeding from the bite persists, which is a good thing. Then, after days, when enough small veins have grown in the finger, the leech treatments can stop. Interestingly, the anticoagulant is called hirudin and is used in a few medicines today due to its potency. Now, if you discover a leech or two on your skin while walking in a rainforest or swimming in a pond inhabited by them, try not to panic. First, look all over your body to know just how many you have. Then, remove them by breaking their suction with the edge of a knife or credit card or a fingernail so they fall off. But don't squeeze them or burn them. Infection is rare, but monitor the wounds closely. And that is your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back. Bob Ferber has returned, and we've got two things we are going to discuss today, beginning with the case that we spoke about a couple weeks ago of an elderly woman in uh, northeast Ohio, and she was sentenced by a judge for feeding cats around her house, and she just refused to stop, and uh, Bob explained how it must have been a tough situation where the judge really had no choice. And uh, we have an update on that. So welcome, Bob, and tell us what's happened. Well, Peter, the judge relented, I'm sure, from lots of public pressure and probably also sympathy for for this woman and vacated the 10-day sentence. When we last spoke, everybody will remember that the judge imposed 10 days. But held on to it, put it on hold. The judge apparently is is giving the woman another chance. But it became clear in the latest media coverage that, as we suspected, she had been given many, many chances. She kept refusing to do it, even denying that she was doing it when neighbors, and according to one article, even her own family was saying that she was still doing it. Uh, and so the judge has given her one more chance. Uh, I feel for the judge and everybody in the legal system because they're trying to stop somebody from doing something that just she's been very difficult in refusing. Uh, I think that ultimately the woman has some mental issues. In the most recent article, there was a suggestion that she's still even denying that she was doing it when she was doing it, mm. still doing it. So. Let's hope that she doesn't continue. I think it's an example of somebody who 
sadly does need some mental health care, and hopefully that will resolve it. But it, it really shows how sometimes the legal system can be very frustrated in dealing with somebody with a mental health problem. And I think this was more about that than it was really about somebody feeding cats in a neighborhood. Very good. Okay, so this also has just come up, which I know you are interested in. We've talked about uh, issues like this before, and that is the Department of Transportation has announced a new ruling or a clarification of a rule stating that miniature horses are permitted to fly as service animals. And I said to myself, oh, that's interesting, and uh, but it's really complicated and still, and it's going to raise even more questions. Uh, what's going on there, Bob? First off, the press release from the Department of Transportation, really you could sense the frustration that they have, but they made it sound like they finally figured it all out. Well, they, I don't believe that they figured this out. They have ruled that uh, miniature horses, which are commonly used and very successfully used as therapy animals on the ground, that they qualify as legal uh, emotional support slash service animals on airplanes. And they've indicated that airplanes are required to allow them on, assuming that the animals have no behavior issues or it's not real clear about how the airline is supposed to figure that out. But they, they did put a caveat in that, of course, this, that any animal, service animal, still has to be well-behaved and not a danger or have any diseases or anything that can, you know, obviously harm other passengers. But their ruling is that, in general, a miniature horse is allowed on an airplane as a therapy animal. Okay, and you are familiar with horses, and uh, there's possible trouble ahead when you've got a horse, even a little one, and these little ones can be as heavy as 250 pounds in turbulence or uh, unfamiliar situations. Right. Uh, I'm a horse lover. I've ridden. I've dealt with miniature horses. They're absolutely wonderful. But anybody familiar with horses knows that a horse is inherently can be a very dangerous animal in a situation where that horse is afraid. Even the most well-trained horses respond uh, negatively to something that surprises them, scares them. I question the wisdom of the Department of Transportation in that, well, a miniature horse makes a great therapy animal on the ground. I, I'm not sure that they have thought out the consequences of a therapy animal that's 200 pounds, that's fear-based, that's in, in an airplane um, in the air and could panic and can kick, can injure a person. If a horse panics in a schoolyard or in a setting where, where they're being a therapy animal for children, whatever, and they get scared, they can be led out of the situation. A horse on an airplane can't be led anywhere, so the horse is now confined, and it seems to me an inherently very dangerous situation. As much as I am a horse lover and an advocate for the airlines allowing a variety of therapy animals on airplanes, it makes me wonder. A, a, a young child is who has a guinea pig as a support animal is not allowed to bring that animal on an airplane but somebody's allowed to bring a 200-pound fear-based animal on an airplane. Where is the logic? I, I think that 
whoever was making these decisions may not have thought out the nature of horses and that while uh, horses make great therapy animals on the ground, should they really be in an airplane? Keep in mind that this ruling from the Department of Transportation doesn't provide any immunity for the airlines. So the airlines are now faced with the possibility of some real uh, litigation from other people when they're in an airplane and a horse Forget about the, the possibility of a horse defecating or peeing, which would be quite something in an airplane. Even a 200-pound, a small miniature horse can produce a lot of poop and pee. Uh, but putting that aside, my concern is the safety of the passengers and the safety of the horse. And a horse can actually hurt itself terribly by being in a confined situation and panicking. So I don't know whether animal advocates or animal experts advise them on this, but as an attorney, I think this is not the end of this, that we're going to hear more about this. And I think if we see more therapy horses on airplanes, I fear we're going to have some situations that are going to hopefully not cause any injuries, but probably will end up with, in some litigation. I'm sure we'll be revisiting this again. Again, Peter, an autistic child who has a guinea pig as a support animal can't bring that on the plane, but somebody else can bring a 200-pound horse on the plane. Just mystifies me. Bob, on a related issue, we have a ruling about pit bulls on airline flights. What was that? Yeah, a very welcome ruling from the Department of Transportation that rejected Delta Airlines' decision to ban all pit bulls uh, from airplanes. Uh, They very logically indicated that animals should be treated individually and and that it shouldn't be based on a breed and that uh, you can't have breed discrimination in deciding whether an, an animal can be on an airplane. So that was a welcome change and uh, anybody who knows pit bulls and has had them knows that they can be the sweetest, most loving and most terrific therapy animals. So there was a logical ruling there. Bob, briefly talk about the rights of a passenger without an animal. Let's say I'm seated next to a flyer with a service animal and I'm just not comfortable or I don't like animals or I sneeze. Uh, What rights does that flyer have to be moved? There is no established rights. Uh, That's the the legal answer to your question. But it has come up in all these situations. Uh, Cats, of course, are legitimate therapy animals that can be on on airplanes. I'm a big cat lover and cat rescuer, but I'm aware that people who are allergic to cats, it can be a very, it can be actually a medically frightening situation. The way the airlines have handled this and the guidelines from the from uh, the, the Department of Justice have been uh, that you try to accommodate everybody. Uh, your listeners might remember that the uh, Americans with Disability Act talks about reasonable accommodation. So airlines, if there's a cat in aisle in row three, uh, and there's somebody in row four that's allergic to cats, the airlines will move either the cat 
or the uh, the person alerted to the cat so that they can accommodate each other. It, it's not always a workable solution, and, you know, this is an ongoing problem. Yeah. Um, the rights of passengers, we've seen it come up not just with animals, but with people sitting next to somebody with a hygiene issue. Uh, uh, nobody who's flown hasn't dealt with the screaming baby that can scream three hours in a flight. What do you do about that? So the, I think this is an evolving area of law about the rights of passengers who don't have a therapy animal, don't have a baby, um, who are not, you know, where they are the victims of somebody else asserting their rights. And I'm not saying people shouldn't have babies on airplanes. I would hope that they would shower when they're on an airplane. But uh, before they get on an airplane. But, yeah, the, this is an evolving problem. And, well, you know, one thing that was suggested many years ago was why haven't airlines uh, come up with a physical arrangement so that certain areas of an airplane can be cordoned off? Uh, you know, we might remember, it was kind of comical, but in the 50s and 60s, airplanes had a smoking section. I mean, it was kind of a joke because you're in a aluminum tube and it didn't really protect non-smokers, but the technology is there that you certainly could have a section in the back where maybe a, you know a service animal maybe a horse service animal is in the back or a cat or you know i don't want to upset your listeners who are children but a children's section or an adults only section uh, these are things that the airlines have rejected so far but it's possible that in the coming years and decades it is litigation happens and this will happen they may be forced to do something you know sometimes it, it takes some major lawsuits for corporations to make changes so uh, it's a really good question and it's an unresolved issue about the rights of passengers i think that we're going to see this come up again especially with this latest ruling about allowing therapy horses on airplanes we'll have to see Bob Ferber, thanks for joining us again. You're welcome. Okay, more with animals today after the break. Hey, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner from Animals Today. Here's a question for you. What do game show host Bob Barker, actress Tippi Hedren, journalist and author Jane Velez Mitchell, and rock legend Paul Rogers all have in common? That's right. Each one has been a guest on Animals Today. In fact, people from all walks of life, like scientists, lawyers, dog and cat rescuers, and whale protectors, have shared their views and described their work on behalf of animals on the show. So keep up on the latest and most important animal news and issues from around the world each week right here. Make sure to join the discussion on Facebook and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And of course, I welcome your ideas and suggestions. So feel free to contact me at Dr. Lori, that's D-R-L-O-R-I, at animalstodayradio.com. See you next time. Welcome back to Animals Today. We're going to talk about famous dogs in Hollywood history. Peter, who would you say is not only one of the most famous canine movie stars in history, but the most famous and recognized German shepherd dog of all time? 
Oh, the German Shepherd part helps. That's Rin Tin Tin, right? That's right. During his life, Rin Tin Tin appeared in 27 Hollywood films, including one called The Man from Hell's River, that was in 1922, Frozen River in 1929, and The Lightning Warrior in 1931. Now, you're going to find Rin Tin Tin's personal story very interesting. He was rescued from a World War I battlefield by an American soldier, Lee Duncan, who nicknamed him Rinty. Apparently, he was the only one who ended up surviving from a bombed-out dog kennel in France during the war. Now, according to a rumor, Rin Tin Tin received more votes in the first year of the Oscars than any other actor. That's funny. But the Academy gave the award to a human to avoid being embarrassed. Warner Brothers referred to Rin Tin Tin as the mortgage lifter and fully understood their success was because of this German Shepherd dog. And this dog was one of the reasons why German Shepherds became so popular as family pets in the United States at that time. Now, after Rin Tin Tin died in 1932, many dogs after him went on to take Rin Tin Tin's name and try to continue his legacy in films, television, and books. So the Rin Tin Tin used for the 1950s television series, The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, was not the original Rin Tin Tin. Another iconic Hollywood canine, you know Toto in The Wizard of Oz, yep. but I bet you don't know Toto's real name. No, I don't. Terry. Terry. Terry was a Karen Terrier. She was born in the midst of the Great Depression. Although Wizard of Oz, which was in 1939, was Terry's most famous role, she actually starred in 16 different movies in her lifetime. She also appeared alongside Shirley Temple in Bright Eyes as the character named Rags, that was in 1934, which was considered her first major film appearance. Reportedly, Terry did all her own stunts and almost lost her life during the filming of The Wizard of Oz. And this story, one of the winky guards, remember them? They're the Wicked Witch of the West's foot soldiers from The Wizard of Oz. Okay, I remember. One of the winky guards accidentally stepped on Toto's foot, breaking it. Toto spent two weeks recuperating at Judy Garland's residence. Garland developed a very close attachment to Toto and wanted to adopt Toto. But the owner and trainer of Toto, Carl Spitz, refused to give her to Judy Garland. Terry, Toto, died at age 11 in Hollywood in 1945 and was buried at Spitz's ranch in Studio City, Los Angeles. The grave was destroyed during the construction of the Ventura Freeway in 1958. But in 2011, a memorial was created for her at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. Nice. Next, who's the most famous collie in Hollywood? That would be Lassie. Very good. A true American icon, right? You know Lassie's real name? Pal. Pal starred in seven different Lassie films and portrayed Lassie in the two pilot episodes of the television series before he had to retire in 1954. Pal was the first of many to portray Lassie and was father to the dogs that would continue to portray Lassie later in the television series. The Saturday Evening Post was quoted as saying that Pal had the most spectacular canine career in film history. Peter, you're old enough to remember the movie Benji. Uh, yeah, another little dog. Yep, he was a mixed breed terrier. Benji's real name was? Uh, Benjamin. Higgins. Higgins. Good guess. In 1960, animal trainer Frank Inn found the dog at the Burbank Animal Shelter as a puppy. In the movie, Benji is a stray dog looking for a home, and when two kids are kidnapped, Benji helps bring the children back to safety. Higgins, a dog trainer, considered this canine film star to be the smartest dog he'd ever worked with because he was able to train Higgins to convey a multitude of emotions through facial expressions only. 
Higgins played in films during the 1960s and 70s, but most famous for his role in the movie Benji. And he played in six of the seven seasons of the TV sitcom Petticoat Junction. Remember that oh, one? That, now that's a connection I <laughs> never made. Petticoat Junction. He also had a guest appearance on the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres. Oh, that's good. He's got the whole trifecta of that little genre there. That's <laughs> right? good. Boy, we're really aging ourselves. Do you remember watching those shows? Vaguely. It was a long time ago. I was alive, though. Green Acres. <laughs> I know Green Acres. <laughs> you are my wife. Goodbye, City Life. <laughs> that's funny. Okay. See, you're old enough, too. Okay. <laughs> Enough singing. But listen to this. When he played in the movie Benji, Higgins was 14 years old. Oh, boy. Higgins died at age 17 in 1975. A couple famous chihuahuas. Yeah, Taco Bell. Very good. What was his name? Gidget. Oh, yeah. Was an advertising figure and mascot for the Taco Bell restaurant chain from September 1997 to July 2000. Gidget also appeared on a commercial for Geico. Uh, before the gecko, maybe. That's right. The other famous chihuahua, you want to guess? Oh, no. You Help. know this one. I do. Uh, there's a chihuahua. Go the ahead. A chihuahua named Bruiser. Oh, yeah. Who from... played Elwood's faithful companion in the Legally Blonde movies. Yeah, I remember Bruiser. Bruiser's real name was Mooney. <laughs> Elwood dressed Bruiser up in pink. Do you think Bruiser minded that? Bruiser could pull it off. By the way, going back to Gidget, Gidget played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. Wow, the Taco Bell Gidget? What? Yeah, oh. played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. I forgot there were multiple chihuahuas <laughs> in Legally Blonde. These two chihuahuas, Mooney and Gidget, lived together. Mooney died March 2016 in Los Angeles at the age of 18. Gidget was euthanized at the age of 15 after suffering from a stroke at her owner's home. You know, it's better to have animals and cartoons as a spokes figures these days. I agree. Because, you know, the people, they tend to get in trouble. They get arrested. There's scandals. Your whole campaign is ruined. So you want to invent something or just get a, get a dog. That's a great point. How about the famous pit bull with the circle around one eye? Yep. Petey from Petey. Our, our gang. Little and Rascals. Very good. That was during the 1930s. Now, the original Petey, his name was Pal the Wonder Dog and was an American pit bull terrier. And he had a natural ring almost completely around the right eye and dye was used to complete the circle. Now, on Wikipedia, you can see a great famous picture of the dog, Petey the pup, sitting in between two of the characters. One was the boy who played Stymie and the other boy, Wheezy. Do you remember those characters? Yes. <laughs> this was in the Our Gang Comedy School's Out. Out, and the picture was dated 1930. When Pal, the Wonder Dog, died, his son named Pete took over the role. Producers decided to continue the tradition of drawing on the entire circle, a custom that would continue in every future remake of The Little Rascals. Nice. Remember Old Yeller? Not so much. Tell me about Old Yeller. Oh, I can't believe you don't remember Old Yeller. Spike was his name. He was a yellow lab mix and best known for his performance as Old Yeller in the 1957 Disney film Old Yeller. Spike was obtained as a puppy from the Van Nuys Animal Shelter in California. The movie Old Yeller tells the story of a stray dog and a young boy who sees potential in him. Gradually, he learns the love of a family, and this dog is protecting them from all sorts of danger and risking his life for them time after time. Do you know how Old Yeller died in the movie? Yeah, I knew there was a sad part of Oh my God, it's the saddest <laughs> scene in film history. <laughs> Old Yeller defends the family against their rabid 
red wolf. And during the fight, Old Yeller's bitten and injured by the wolf. And because of Old Yeller's exposure to rabies, the older son is forced to shoot and kill Old Old Yeller. You don't remember that scene? I, I can't believe my parents allowed me to watch well, that movie. My parents loved me. They did not allow me to see it. Well, maybe that's why I turned out the way I am. <laughs> I'm going to stop here because thinking about what happened, Old Yeller is making me too sad. Okay, Lori. Thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.